This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 29th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The constitutional role of the jury has been supplanted by legislative and other limitations. Suja Thomas is author of The Missing American Jury. We spoke today. Why was a grand jury considered to be an important thing in the founding era? So grand juries were considered important because they were a check on the government. And so there was the initial check of the grand jury deciding whether a case should proceed. And so at least 12 people would decide that a case should proceed against uh, a um, criminal defendant. And so it was a check on um, the in the in the English Times, it was a check on uh, on the Crown and and their prosecuting cases, and um, and and so that was important. And then we had the additional check of the jury that twelve people had to decide. So you had twenty four people had to decide that someone was going to be punished in some way. It may be death, and it may be some type of imprisonment, but I'll. People from the community were going to decide. As you note in your book, the burden that is necessary to get a grand jury to agree to an indictment has decreased. And you say that's sort of taken away power from the grand jury because if they have less to decide and the uh, the line between yes, indict or no, don't indict is a much clearer line, there's really less for them to do. Yes. I, I mean, I touch on it and briefly in the in the book uh, because others have written on that subject that this, this standard uh, for uh, a grand jury actually finding someone that the case actually goes forward against someone has actually um, uh, been lessened. Um, at least some people have argued that. I myself haven't done that research. The grand jury is or was a check. It doesn't seem to be a very substantive check these days on uh, the desire of presumably the government to put somebody in jail or punish them somehow. But the other check, the, the criminal jury, if I hadn't grown up with seeing juries on TV, it might strike me as very odd that 12 random uh, local people had been impaneled for the purpose of ascertaining my guilt or innocence. Yeah, I mean, the the Constitution sets it up, and I think it makes a lot of sense that people from the community are going to decide whether you go to jail, not the government, right? And so the Constitution sets that up, but then in the book I show that it's in fact the case that we don't have juries decide many cases at all. In fact, over 90% of cases are plea bargained. And that that is a, an example of a shift of authority where instead of juries deciding, we actually have prosecutors deciding. And how we have prosecutors deciding is there's this huge difference between what you get in a plea versus what you get if you deign to take your jury. And as a result, no one's going to take their jury. What has driven that? I assume mandatory minimums. And by that, uh, by extension, legislatures have supplanted uh, the role of juries to make those kinds of adjudications, and that gives prosecutors enormous leverage. 
That's absolutely right. That that in uh, in addition to the prosecutors, we have the involvement of the legislatures and and what they've done in terms of criminalizing, as well as um, what you stated, um, the the imposition of mandatory. Um, sentencing. How do prosecutors feel about juries? Uh, to hear Tim Lynch tell it, uh, in some cases, if you want to assert your right of a jury trial, prosecutors, one, it costs them resources to put on a, a to go through with a trial. Yeah, I, I think I think it's always we're we're driven by what outcome we want, and so if the outcome that they can get is um, a conviction. Um, and they can get a conviction by driving it through the plea, they're going to do that, right? It's, it, it takes the burden off of them to actually prove their case. Uh, and, um, and if a case is actually tried before a jury, I think it's, there's different cases, I think, that prosecutors would say that they would pick one or the other depending on what they actually think the outcome will be. When I spoke with... Uh a gentleman by the name of Steve Silverman from a group called Flex Your Rights. Uh, we've talked a couple of times about uh, not just mandatory minimums, but plea bargaining and the so-called jury nullification. And uh, the argument that I don't want to misstate what he said, but also I'll say it was I'll say it's my argument is that if you got rid of mandatory minimums, uh, you and you got rid of uh, plea bargaining. And you got rid of, and you allowed juries to find for, um, to nullify essentially, then you would have a system in which prosecutors would be far more judicious about attempting to bring charges. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's totally rational. That that um, if um, and we probably actually, any one of those reforms, frankly. Yeah, I mean, and part of it is a resource issue, um, and part of it is that people like to win. Right. So, so as a result, um, in fact, in some countries, um, that's sometimes a problem because in some countries where there is also um, lay participation in various countries, uh, it's the case that uh, sometimes they bring these cases um, only the cases that they can win. And so, I think that's going to be the case um, at uh, if if that system, your system, um, comes into being. Do courts like, and forgive me stupid juries? So that's a tough question because it assumes that there are uh, stupid juries. And I think judges I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go out on a limb and presume that there are stupid juries out there. Well, judges, if you talk to judges, judges talk a lot about how juries do a good job. That's what judges say all the time. And so do juries make mistakes? I'm sure they do. Um, do prosecutors make mistakes? I'm, I, I'm sure they do. So it's the case um, that you get with a jury, you get a group of people together, and they're able to draw on each other's experiences, and um, they're able to draw on each other's um, listening um, of, their, of the evidence, and they can deliberate together and try to figure out what the outcome should be. So um, I can't be drawn into your um, sure. characterization of stupid juries because I think um, it's the case that we all sometimes make mistakes. Uh, and I don't think the founders thought that the jury was perfect. I think they thought it was the best body to decide cases. 
in your book, you're arguing for a restoration of the constitutional role of juries, both civilly and criminally. But on the criminal side, what outcomes has this imbalance that we have now, what has it delivered? Well, it's this shift, right? It's this this idea that, that prosecutors decide and then as a result, um, we don't have anyone from the community actually making a determination that someone should actually be punished. So it's this shift from what the Constitution actually requires that the community decide. Instead, we have people who are, I guess, most, most of the time elected, and then the line people underneath them deciding who goes to jail. And I don't, and I think that that's problematic given what the Constitution says, that's one thing, but also it's also problematic because there are incentives that prosecutors have that I don't think juries have. Juries don't have an incentive to um, decide in a certain way. They're not going to get paid uh, in a certain way because of an outcome, whereas prosecutors have um, incentives to bring cases. Uh, and, and, and I think that's another good reason why juries should decide these types of cases. The grand jury is a check on zealous prosecution. The jury is potentially a, a check on zealous prosecution. Uh, why not have the judge, in, in many cases, who can uh, acquit after a jury has returned a guilty verdict? Why, why not have that additional check on uh, government zeal to put somebody in jail? If I were to actually write a constitution, I might actually put that in the constitution. But the way the constitution is written as it is now, and what we're based on, which is the vibrant English jury of the late 18th century, it was the case that after a jury convicted, a judge could not find against what the jury found. What the judge could do is the judge could recommend uh, to the king that uh, the person um, be pardoned uh, and could recommend either that the person totally be set free or the person um, receive a different sentence. Uh, But the king decided. And invariably, the king actually agreed with what uh, the the judge recommended, but the judge could not on his own decide that. And in fact, in our Constitution, our Constitution gives that reprieve and pardon power to the President of the United States. It doesn't give it to, to judges. So um, while the judge acquitting could be perceived as a check on the system that I think uh, many people would argue, and I would say, yeah, that, that is a check on the system. The book um, is an argument based on that we need to draw lines and that the jury itself was supposed to, is supposed to decide that issue. And what I argue is that if we think the jury did something wrong, made the wrong decision, let's send that case back to another jury. Uh, and that and and have the jury decide the decide the case again, um, because the jury is is given the authority to decide under Article Three, Section Two. No other part of the government is given that authority. Suja Thomas is author of *The Missing American Jury: Restoring the Fundamental Constitutional Role of the Criminal, Civil, and Grand Juries*. 
Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.